Dave asked me some weeks ago if I would speak to you this morning on the subject of temptation. I understand a lot about temptation. So do you. We live in it all the time. But I was looking through the scripture trying to discern what particular passage might be most apt and most helpful to us. The Lord kind of directed me to the first chapter of James. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to look with me at James chapter 1. I I really want to do a Bible study with you this morning on this wonderful passage. I'm not going to try to preach a sermon or tell a lot of stories or whatever. I just want to look into this text. It is so profound. It is so rich. And honestly, I don't know how far I'll get in trying to get through it. We could spend hours and hours in this particular text. But I do at least want to give us a good understanding of what it says here with regard to temptation and how practically it applies to our lives. Look at verse 13 of James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished... It brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, there's so much in this passage, I don't know how much we'll be able to cover. But the general theme here, of course, is obvious to you, is the matter of temptation. And the question that this passage answers is this question. Whose fault is my sin? When I sin, whose fault is it? Now, we're living in a culture of sort of no-fault iniquity. People don't want the responsibility for their own sin. Everybody is a victim. In fact, I'm in the process of writing a book. Hopefully, Lord willing, it'll be finished by the 1st of December. And the title of the book is The Vanishing Conscience. The subtitle has to do with living in a guilt-free, no-fault society. Whose fault is our sin? Is it our fault or is it somebody else's fault? People today would agree that it's not their fault, it's somebody else's fault. The Bible would tell us in this passage it is absolutely and unequivocally and only our fault. We're going to look at this matter of sin and temptation in this passage, and particularly from the perspective of whose fault is it. Now, just to give you a little bit of quick background, James is concerned in his epistle with tests of genuineness. In other words... He wants to identify those things which mark a true Christian. That's really what he does through this entire epistle. You'll notice if you have any kind of heading in your Bible or any kind of paragraph that kind of introduces the book, that anybody who comments on this says it is a series of tests by which you can validate someone's faith. Now, the first test came from verse 2 down through Verse 11, and that was the test of how one faces trials. You can tell a Christian by how they cope with trials. 
And here we come to the second one, starting in verse 13. You can tell a Christian by how they cope with, how they deal with temptation. Now, we want to talk then in the second category here, not about uh, how we deal with trials, but how we deal with the specific issue of temptation. And, of course, the two are connected because trials rather easily become temptations. In fact, to put it simply, in every circumstance you face, in every trial of life, there is a potential for that trial to turn into a temptation. Any kind of difficulty can, can cause sin or it can cause victory and triumph. God brings trials into our lives it does not bring temptations into our lives. God brings trials and tests for our growth, but those trials and tests intended for our growth can become temptations that work the very opposite, the very opposite. Now, when trials and temptations come, James is very concerned here about who's responsible for those. And the issue of blame is a very old issue. Go back to Genesis 3 and the very first sin we have in the Scripture. You don't need to turn to it. You remember that... Adam sinned in following Eve. Eve was the first one that sinned, and then Adam followed her. And you remember when God confronted Adam about his sin, what he said? He basically said, the woman you gave me. Who did he blame? Not Eve. He blamed God. The woman you gave me. It was as if he was saying, God, look, I went to sleep a bachelor. I woke up married. I didn't ask for this woman. You picked her. You made her. I didn't even know what a woman was. There were no women. You brought this woman. You made her the way she was. You gave her to me. I didn't ask for her. And now look what's happened. It's the woman you gave me. And from the very beginning, from the very first sin, man has always had the propensity to blame God for his sin. Whatever sin it is, whether it's some kind of sin in the area of, of cheating or lying, dishonesty, whether it's some kind of sin in the moral area, whether it's some kind of sin in mistreating a person or being selfish and proud, whatever it is, the tendency of our flesh is to say, well, what do you expect, God? This is the way I am. I'm weak. I'm fallen. I'm, I'm only human. You brought sin. You allowed sin into the world. You, you allowed temptation to be all around me. It really is your fault. In fact, in Isaiah 63:17, it says to God, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Why do you do this to us? It's nothing new to blame God, either directly or indirectly. If you blame the fact that you're weak, if you blame the fact that you somebody influenced you. I remember when I was a kid, I... Uh, stole something out of Sears, and uh, some kid dared me to do it. When I was a little guy, about nine years old, we were walking through Sears, and he said, I dare you to steal that. And I was competitive, you know, so I took him up, and I stole this little thing. I think it was a cigarette lighter. I didn't smoke, by the way, but that was the nearest thing. And as we were leaving the store, the house detective caught us. And my first response was, well, he, he made me do it. I mean, that is typical human response. And we take that a step further and say, well, I mean, God, you made the world the way it is, and you put all these kind of weird people around me who are 
easily fallen into sin and they influenced me and after all I'm a sinner and I'm fallen and look at the world how much pressure is coming from the world and you gave me all these impulses and you put me here and you know I really need to succeed and I'm paying all this money to go to school and so you know you've made me into this situation I'm in and if I'm going to get out of here and please my parents and everybody else maybe I gotta snitch a little cheat over here on this or that or whatever it is we tend if not directly indirectly to blame God now, James addresses that then in verse 13. Let's look at it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. That is not an option. Blaming God is absolutely forbidden. The famous Scottish poet Robert Burns once wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. In other words, God, you made me this way. Some Jews used to reason that because God created man, he must have created man's, what the Jews called yetzer hara, which means his evil impulse. I mean, if God was the creator, then he created that. If he made everything, he must have made the yetzer hara. He must have made the evil impulse. So we get some very strange rabbinic sayings in ancient Judaism, such as the following. God said, it repents me that I created the evil tendency in man, for had I not done so, he would not have rebelled against me. I created the evil tendency. I created the law as a means of healing. If you occupy yourself with the law, you will not fall into the power of it. God placed the good tendency on man's right hand and the evil on his left. And so the rabbis even came, some of them, to believe that God made man evil as well as good. But James forbids such a thought or such an association. Now, let's look closer at this verse. Let no one say when he is tempted. That is a present passive participle in the Greek. It means when he is in the process of being tempted. In other words, this is not some coolly indifferent uh, assessment of the theology of temptation from a distance. This is what generally occurs in the process of being tempted. You're looking for somebody to blame. Let no one, while in the very process of being tempted, rationalize or excuse himself by blaming God. The statement is a very simple one, a very basic one, and one that we must adhere to. If we're ever going to be able to triumph over temptation, young people, the first thing we have to do is accept the reality of complete responsibility. We cannot blame God directly or indirectly for it, or there is an out. When you are in the path of continued temptation near to yielding, and you find that excuse, well, I'm being tempted by God, or it's the world God made, or it's the, the, the flesh, the way I'm created, uh, it's that God allowed fallenness, and what does He expect out of me? You have no right to say that. And the placement of the Greek text, apatheu here, is emphatic. Let no one say, while he is being tempted... From God I am being tempted. And the Greek language uh, uses the word order to make the, the emphatic. Here the emphatic is on from God. Let no one say, 
from God I am being tempted. Now, there's another little interesting word in this, a little interesting thought in this word, apa, which is a preposition. In your Bible, it might say that I am being tempted by God. Some versions say from God. There are two possible prepositions that can be used here. One is the preposition of. Uh, the other would be from. They could even use by. But those, those are not necessarily going to take us to the core of the meaning. Let's go to the Greek ones. There are two possible Greek words. Hapa and hupo. And I don't want to bog you down in this. But hupo has the idea of direct agency. That is, if I say I am being tempted hupo by God, I am being tempted directly and actually by God himself. But if I use apa, it is indirect. It is remote. And he chooses apa. It is not that we purposely say, God, you are tempting me. You are doing this to me. It is not the hupo kind of thing. It is the remote, indirect one, hapa, where we say, God, you're allowing this to happen. You're providing the situation, the fallenness. This is the way I am. You're the one who's in charge of all of that. So indirectly, you are responsible for what's happening in my life. I am a poor victim. I have no choice. There's really nothing I can do about it. After all, what do you expect from one who is fallen? This isn't blaming Satan, it isn't blaming demons, it isn't blaming the world, it isn't blaming men, it is really blaming God. In Proverbs 19.3 we read, The foolishness of man perverts his way, listen to this, and his heart frets against God. And again we see that very same kind of attitude. Philo said, When the mind has sinned and removed itself far from virtue, it lays the blame inevitably on divine causes, attributing to God its own choices. Escaping responsibility for sin is a favorite human pastime. And people do blame Satan or demons or heredity or friends or environment or parents. But inevitably, all of that is saying, God, you allowed all of those people, all of those realities, all of those entities to exist. And therefore, what do you expect me to do? Some people might even seek support from Scripture. I've heard people say, God leads us into temptation. Why do you say that? Because in the disciples' prayer of Matthew 6.13, it says, lead us not into temptation. And why would we have to ask God to lead us not into temptation unless he were leading us into temptation? Why do we have to ask him not to do it unless he's doing it? And so people try to use that verse to indicate that God is in fact responsible for temptation and we have to ask him to stop doing that. We'll see more about that verse later. That is not what it is saying. But James has no such place for foolish fatalism. Like the poor man, you know, who blames his poverty when he becomes a thief. Like the drunk who blames his marriage or his business failures for his drunkenness and his alcoholism. We always feel the pressure to be excused from our guilt. Robert Burns, again, the poet, always wanting to exonerate himself, also wrote that he was by passion driven. But yet the light that led astray was light from heaven. And James is saying that is an intolerable perspective. It is not true. God 
never, ever tempts us and never directly or indirectly is to be held responsible for any temptation. If you are being tempted, it is a source other than God, and if you fall, it is because you choose to fall. Now, to support this exhortation, and this is the heart of the passage, to support the exhortation of verse 13, which is never to blame God, there are five proofs given. Five proofs why God is never to blame for your sin or mine. Five proofs. Very, very profound. God cannot be the cause of temptation, ever. God cannot be the cause of sin for five reasons. Here they are. The nature of evil, the nature of man, the nature of lust, the nature of God, and the nature of regeneration. All five of those things make it evidently clear that God is not responsible for our falling into sin from temptation. It is a powerful argument. Let's start with the nature of evil. The nature of evil. Verse 13 again. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. In ancient times, of course, false gods were always liable for everything that went wrong because false gods, the gods of the pagans, were in themselves evil. They were frequently seen as tempters. They were frequently seen as doing what was wicked and causing their followers to do what was wicked. Their deities were corrupt. But that is not true of the God of Scripture. The nature of evil is unholiness. The nature of evil is wickedness. And that makes it exclusively apart from God because the nature of God is purity and righteousness and holiness. God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly good. In fact, He is holy, holy, holy. Habakkuk says He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. He is untouched by anything that is wicked. And verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. That's a very interesting word. See where it says cannot be tempted. It is the word aperastas. It comes from a Greek verb, pereo, which is used only here in the whole New Testament. And the word means to experience, to personally experience. So let's read it that way. God cannot personally experience evil. That's the idea. He has no experience of evil. He has no capacity for evil. He has no vulnerability. Theologians have debated through the years a, a subject called the impeccability of Christ. That is to say, impeccability means he cannot sin. The question is, could Christ have sinned or could he not have sinned? The obvious answer is he could not have sinned. He was impeccable. He had no capacity for doing evil because he was God. There was no vulnerability. He had no opportunity to experience evil because there was nothing in his nature that could do evil or receive evil or think evil or feel evil. The whole realm, and by the way, the form of the word evil here is a neuter plural adjective, which means that it indicates without the article the whole realm of evil. God has no experience of anything in the vast realm of evil. All evil is apart from God, detached from God, distant from God. So the nature of evil, then, is that it is by definition utterly and completely apart from God. His 
holiness is utterly unmixed. He is holy, 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 eternally. Then look at the end of verse 13. He adds, and neither does he himself tempt anyone. The character of God is impregnable to the onslaught of evil. Furthermore, he does not tempt any man. He is not only incapable of experiencing evil, he is incapable of causing anybody else to experience evil. He cannot bring it into his own experience, and he cannot bring it into your experience or my experience. He can't do it. Now, some people have questioned that, and they will use a familiar scripture, 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, you remember when David numbered the people, God indicted him for sin? That was a sin for him to number the people because it showed a lack of trust in God's ability to defend the people. And David was going to count his soldiers and count his people so that he would know how how great was his human might, and God saw it as sin because of the fact that he needed to trust in God. It wasn't how many people he had. It was the great God he had that would be the source of his protecting and confidence. But it says in verse 1, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to number the people. People say, well, that obviously means that God got angry and God tempted David to go and number the people, which he did. It doesn't say that. It says the anger of God incited David. But what was the actual issue of inciting David? You find in a parallel passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, the very same situation being discussed. And listen to what it says. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. It wasn't God. The anger of God made David angry. And in feeling the fury of God against sin, David's anger turned him to vulnerability. Satan moved in and tempted him, and that's why he numbered the people. So there's no capacity and there's no illustration of God tempting anyone. Some others might say, what about Matthew 4 where it says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness not to tempt him, but to expose him to, to Satan, who then tempted him to prove to Satan and all the hosts of darkness and all the world of men that Christ could not sin. God didn't do the tempting. Satan did the tempting. God simply put Jesus in the place where the test could be given. What about the Scripture, lead us not into temptation, Matthew 6? What about that? What it is simply saying is, lead us not, Lord, into any kind of situation where the temptation will overpower us. That's the idea. This is the natural cry of human weakness. Lord, never let me get into a situation where the temptation is too much. And we have the promise that He will answer that prayer. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will never allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
God will never lead you into a place where you will be overpowered by temptation. He will never allow a circumstance to come into your life that is beyond your ability. But when it says, lead us not into temptation, that's what it means. Don't ever let me get into a situation that is beyond my ability and strength. So first, God cannot be responsible for your sin in any way because of the nature of evil. Evil is utterly separate from and distant from God. He can't experience it and He can't make anybody else experience it. He can allow us to be in situations where our faith is tested, but He will never induce the temptation. In fact, for Him, He puts us there that we might be strengthened And if we respond to our spiritual resources, we will be strengthened. The temptation does not come from Him. The opportunity and the testing comes from Him. The temptation comes from the flesh, the world, the devil. Secondly, the nature of man. And this, too, is a very important understanding. Look at verse 14. And here is the best definition you'll ever get of the temptation process. But each one is tempted... Not from God, but when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Then when lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. Here is the pathology of sin. Every man, each one, no exception, is tempted, a repeated human experience, when he is literally Dragged away. That is a very strong word. Ex elkamenos in the Greek. And the verb is a compound verb from elkamai. It means to be drawn by an inward power. It means to be led or compelled or impelled. Or literally to be lured into a trap, to be baited and caught. It is used as a hunting term for capturing animals. In other words, we sin when we are tempted and trapped and hooked and compelled and baited by our own lust. Notice the word enticed there. Metaphorically, that means to catch a fish. Metaphorically, I mean it means to entice. Actually, it means to catch a fish with bait. It is sometimes in the New Testament translated beguiled or allured, but it's actually a fishing term. You sin because Satan hangs out the bait, the world hangs out the bait, the flesh hangs out the bait, and you get hooked and trapped by deceit. It looks attractive, it looks good, it looks inviting, it looks like it'll feel good, you'll accomplish your goal, you'll get what you want, and instead of the anticipated pleasure comes the pain of capture. That's temptation. It promises a tasty indulgence. And the lured victim sees only the desired morsel of momentary satisfaction and is hooked in a deadly way. And whose fault is it? God's? No. His own lust does it. It isn't even the devil in in that sense. It isn't that you're tempted all the time by the devil. Occasionally you may be. Occasionally you may be tempted by demonic forces. But let me give you a little hint. For the most part, Satan and demonic forces operate through the world system and they come at you indirectly. I'm not saying exclusively, but for the most part. But what is the source of direct temptation is the lust that is in you. 
the lust of the flesh, John says, the lust of the eyes or the lust for pride and self-glory. That's the nature of man. We have lust within us and lust is the problem. Men are led astray. Baited hooks catch them. Traps trap them because of their own lust. And this is very, very basic in our understanding of Christian living. There is something in you and something in me that is wicked and is evil and is fallen and it hungers after what is wrong. Unquestionably. And it's deep inside of us. Paul describes it in Romans 7 when he says there's a principle in me and that principle in me wants to do what is wrong and it wants not to do what is right. And he sums it up in Romans 7.25 by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am! I see one principle in me that loves God and loves the law of God and there's a principle warring with that principle and there is that principle of my flesh that hankers after what is wrong. Our temptability, young people, is because even though there's a new creation in us that is not temptable, there is the flesh that is temptable. That's the battle of Romans chapter 7. And each of us has a different, a different kind of twist or turn on temptability. Every person has his own pattern of fleshly desire. We're different. We're unique. There are different patterns and lusts. It's all evil lust, and it's the basic kinds of lusts that all of us have, but it attaches itself at different points to different things. Our temptability is because of the nature of man and his own peculiar desires. It's still there. The flesh is still there. Romans 8 says we're waiting for the redemption of our body. We're waiting to get rid of the flesh. So we have a new creation incarcerated in old, unredeemed flesh. And that's where those temptable impulses come from. Pogo had it right. He said, we met the enemy and the enemy's us. It's in us. That's why we get hooked on sin, because there's something in us that hankers after sin. We don't need Satan to sin. We don't need demons to bug us to sin. You can go up in a monastery somewhere on the side of a mountain and contemplate your navel for two weeks, and you won't be able to get over lust. If you can't see it, you'll fantasize it. You'll imagine it. And you'll remember who you hate. And pride will well up in your life about the fact that you're up there doing this wonderful and spiritual thing and you'll become proud. Every kind of sin is going to assault us in every kind of situation. That's just the way we're made. Our lust is the culprit. The culprit is the nature of man. The nature of man. Let's look at the nature of lust. Thirdly, the nature of lust. Verse 15, here's how it works. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is very, very important. Now, the metaphor changes from a hunting metaphor, a fishing metaphor in verse 14 to a childbearing metaphor. Here you've got conception and birth in verse 15. You've got a conception and a birth. The metaphor is different, but the concept is the same. Now, follow this. Most people think of sin as kind of a single act. Temptation comes and you sin. 
But there's a process here. There is lust. There is lust that is tempted, according to verse 14. But look what happens in verse 15. Lust then conceives. Boy, that is a tremendously important concept. Lust then conceives. What do you mean by that? Literally, the Greek word sulabusa means to become pregnant. It's exactly what it means. It's an aristocratic participle. The idea is that the temptation comes and you're impregnated by it as if the temptation is, is seed and you are the woman and you are impregnated by that temptation and then you begin to produce within you the fully formed sin that is given birth. Very graphic. Very graphic. It starts with an unprotected mind, an uncontrolled mind, an undisciplined heart and will, and the seed of temptation comes at us, and we allow that thing to impregnate us, and then comes the disastrous time when that sin starts as a very small little impulse and becomes a fully developed embryo, ultimately a child, and we give birth to it. It is in that conception and in that period of development that sin has to be dealt with. Let me borrow another biblical picture of this. You remember back in Genesis when the chapter 6, God said that man was evil? He said it this way, all the imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Imagination is a very key concept. Temptation comes. If you can see it for what it is, understand it in the light of Scripture, and deal with it, you have won the victory. As soon as that temptation goes from your conscious mind, your rational thought, into your imagination, you are now starting to fantasize the feelings and the realities and the benefits and what's going to come out of it and how it's going to meet your needs and suit you just fine. And as you begin to conceive it and play out the scenario in your whole mind and premeditate the benefits of that sin and why you want to do it, whether that takes a long time or a short time, sin has been conceived. And then you are allowing the thing to fully develop in your mind and inevitably, unless that process is stopped, you will give birth to it. The imagination is the key thing. If I can keep sin outside my imagination, if I can keep it in my rational mind, I can say that temptation would cause me to do something, one, that displeases God, two, that is against Scripture, three, that will affect my life negatively, four, that will affect my relationship to others, five, that will affect my, my usefulness to God. That sin will pull me down. That's a rational concept of that sin, right? And my rational mind, governed by Scripture, says, I don't want to do that sin. Shun that sin. Refuse that sin. Turn your back on that sin. Move away from that sin. It's devastating. It's destructive. There's a hook under that bait. And I'm going to get caught. There's a trap behind that thing. I'm going to get trapped. And your mind tells you that. But if you overrule your mind and you flip that 
temptation into your imagination where you begin to conceive of all of the things that you're going to feel and accomplish and what it's going to do for you, now you have conceived the sin. And sin conceived is sin born. It can be aborted. It's harder as you move through the gestation process of that sin, be it short or long. Sin has to be dealt with initially. Lust comes. It fires that seed of temptation. It wants sin to be conceived in the imagination. And we concoct all of what it will be like to experience that. The feeling we'll get. The success we'll get. The achievement we'll get in school. How far we'll get with our friends. We'll move up the ladder in our business. Whatever it might be. We'll have more money if we cheat over here or over there. Don't pay our taxes Even in the sexual area, the physical area, we'll feel good. We'll enjoy all the things that come from that. And once it hits the imagination, it is conceived and it gives birth to sin. Very, very vivid language. But if you really want to know what it is, follow the next phrase. When sin is conceived or given birth, it brings forth what? Death. The word here, apakue, means to give birth to. So when you give birth to that sin, it produces thanatos, death. What a picture. Wow, listen to this. Lust wants to plant the seed. If it can get past your mind, past your understanding, past what is reasonable and biblical, and get to your imagination. It will conceive. And then your imagination will concoct all the benefits of that sin and it will rationalize that sin and it will excuse that sin and it may even blame God for the circumstances that led to it. It will do whatever it needs to do to bring that sin to fullness. And then when that sin is really fully ripe, it will be born and the baby born will be a killer. To put it in graphic terms, you will give birth to a mass murderer. You'll give birth to a spiritual Jeffrey Dahmers who chopped up 17 boys. Why? Because sin is a killer. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Even the death of chastening, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 John chapter 5, Believers committing sins for which the Lord takes their life. Sin is a killer. It killed Christ. So realize what you've got going. And verse 16 says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Understand, don't let yourself be led astray, my beloved brethren. Don't get caught in this trap of temptation because you're going to give birth to a child that is a mass murderer. Stop at the start. The nature of evil, the nature of man, the nature of lust are the agencies of sin, not God. Let me just very briefly mention verse 17, the nature of God. We've talked about the nature of evil and man and lust, but the nature of God is indicated in verse 17. Look at this. This is absolutely wonderful. 
God doesn't tempt us. On the contrary, listen to this. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. On the contrary, God isn't tempting us. Everything God gives us is what? It's good. That's his point. It's good. Every, everything that comes down from God, everything that comes down from the Father of lights, that's simply a Hebrew way of speaking about God as Creator. The lights meaning the stellar bodies, the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. The God who created the universe, he says, when he gives us a gift, he gives us a good gift and a perfect gift. Every act of God, every giving that God does, every gift that we receive is beneficial. All of God's gifts are good. That's what he's saying. God would never tempt us. And he says this, there is no variation in this and there's no shifting shadow. Well, what graphic terms. The sun makes a shadow. We know that. The moon will even sometimes cast a shadow. And sometimes the shadow of the earth covers part of the moon, right? In other words, he's saying all the stellar bodies move and shift and vary and change and create shadows and variations, right? The day, the morning to night, the night to the dawn, all different darkness and light and shades and we look at the sky during the day and it changes and it moves and it shifts and shadows move this way and that way and the sun goes this way and then it starts drifting south as it goes from east to west. And we understand all of that. And what he is saying is the God who made all the heavenly bodies which move and vary and shift and change and cast shadows himself never changes. And so what he gives as his gifts are unvarying gifts. They are the same. They're not like the stellar bodies. The very God of Lights, the father of all the universe, who created a shadowy universe and a shifting universe, is himself never shifting and never varying. There is no parallax. It's the word here, paralago. The flow of good things never varies. And he's simply saying, don't ever think God's giving you something bad. All he ever gives you is what is good. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. All we ever get from God is streams of mercy never ceasing. And the last point. The nature of regeneration. The final proof that God doesn't cause us to sin. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of God's will. He brought us forth. What does that mean? The new birth. He saved us. By the word of truth. So that we might become, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. Listen to this. This is all about salvation. God regenerated us. In the exercise of His will, He gave us new life, new birth through the word. In order that we might become the first fruits of His Creatures. What does he mean, the first fruits? The first fruits, follow this, of an assembly of holy people. That's exactly what he means. 
The first fruits of a whole new creation created in Christ Jesus as righteous and holy. In other words, he didn't save us to make us evil. He saved us to make us holy. For God to tempt us would go against the grain of the very reason he saved us. There is no justification at all ever for anyone to blame God directly or indirectly for their sin. It cannot be God's fault. It is never his fault. It is the nature of evil. It is the nature of man. It is the nature of lust working and operating in us. It is not the nature of God. It is not the nature of regeneration or new birth. In fact, that transformation should be so obvious to us as it was to Augustine. Augustine, before he was a Christian, was a wretched person. He lived with a prostitute. And one day after he was saved, he was walking down the street. I close with this little reminder. He was walking down the street and the prostitute saw him. He saw her and he kept walking and ignored her. He was a relatively new Christian. She kept calling at him and calling at him. And finally she said, it is I, it is I, it is I. To which he finally turned and recited to her, I know, but it is no longer I. I'm not the same. You are the same. I'm not. When you were saved by God, you were saved to be different. God would never make you to be holy and then cause you to sin. Well... Great, great passage. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for this time in Your Word. And Lord, help us to be very much aware that our sin is our own. And help us to remember the words that You've given us in Scripture. How shall a young person cleanse his ways? By taking heed to Your Word. The words of David, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin. Help us, Lord, to stop at the start before lust can conceive and deal with temptation in our, in, our, in our minds, thinking of it for what it really is as we think biblically. Pray, Lord, that for every one of these young people, you will give great strength. When all is said and done, we still depend totally on your Holy Spirit. Give them victory over every temptation that they may know the joy of righteousness and that you may be glorified in every life. In Jesus' name, amen.